Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and, and to get a little taste of uh, what we will be doing for eternity, worshiping you and glorifying you and, and remembering the, the great things that you have done from the beginning of time through all of creation, through your redemption and your grace and your love and the, the salvation that you bring to your people. I thank you for a chance this morning to, to hear that story and to, to sing your praise because of what you have done and because of who you are. And I pray that as we open the Bible together that you would use your holy word to speak into our lives and to help us to understand better what you are doing and, and how we fit into the plan of what you do. So I pray that you would send your spirit to use your word and power to shape our lives after you and your plan. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I decided to make waffles for breakfast. It was a Saturday, and I had a little extra time, and I think waffles are delicious, so I got out the waffle iron, I got out a mixing bowl, and started getting this stuff together, and, and my, my two-year-old son, August, saw that something different was happening. We don't normally do this on a, a morning for breakfast. This is going to be something special. So he quickly kind of scurried off to the pantry and, and grabbed his little stool and brought it up next to me and, and plopped it down and, and got up on the stool and, and quickly turned to me and said, what can I do? I want to help you. And this was great, right? I think this is a great opportunity. It's a Saturday morning, so I get out the ingredients. I, I give him a spoon, and he's stirring the stuff with me, and I you know, um, get out the mixer and, and let him hold the mixer handle with me when we beat up the egg whites. And, and so we make waffles together. It's a, it's a great thing. And I I think it's really, it's a fun stage of life when, when a two-year-old can see what's going on and wants to be part of the action. I think somewhere in life, maybe around um, the teenage years in particular, at least for myself, we kind of lose that wanting to be in on the action and want to sort of remove ourselves from the action and be passive and let someone else do all the work. I'm sure our, our wonderful students here are not in that stage of life. I'm sure you see your parents doing something and you think, I want to be part of that. How can I help? What can I do to help you guys? But I think somewhere along the line, we, we learn a degree of, of passivity, of being passive. So I, you know, I can't know for sure, but I would be surprised if this uh, continued for the rest of my son's life. I, I'd be surprised if in 15 years I announced that I'm going to go shovel the snow and he quickly runs over and puts his boots on and grabs a shovel and, and starts helping me. Um, I'd be pleasantly surprised, but surprised nonetheless. We get this attitude that if I'm not responsible for that, then I don't have to be involved with it. So... If you want to make waffles for breakfast, that's great. I'll eat some, but I'm not going to be involved in the process. Or if you want the walk shoveled, then, then you can shovel it. I'm going to sit here on the couch and kind of enjoy myself and do my own thing here. And the same attitude can pretty quickly creep into the church. We can think, well, I'm not responsible for, for that ministry. I'm not responsible for doing that thing. That's, I mean, that's what we have pastors for. We pay pastors to do these things so that, that they are the one in charge when we don't have to kind of get involved. We can be a little bit more passive in this. But, but here's a, a quiz for you, a trick question. According to the Bible, who are the ones who are responsible for works of ministry, works of service? Well, Ephesians 4 says that the, the leaders in the church, the pastors and the, the elders and all these, are to equip the saints for works of service. They're to equip all Christians to do the works of ministry. So the answer to that, who is responsible for ministry, is all of us. We as Christians, all of us are responsible for ministering, for, for doing works of ministry and service. Now, if that is true, then our uh, propensity to be 
passive in the face of uh, activity, so being passive instead of actively getting involved, is a problem. We would rather kind of see other people do the work and, and let them be responsible for it and let them take on all the responsibility for it and to be passive ourselves. But this is a problem if, if that Ephesians 4 passage is right, that, that all Christians are responsible for works of ministry. So how do we move beyond that inclination to being passive to really being involved in taking our part in the ministry? Well, we are in our penultimate week in the book of Romans, uh, the second to last week in our book of Romans. So that we're in the second of three weeks now in the, the conclusion to the book of Romans. We're, we're, um, Paul is wrapping up the letter now, and, and last week we saw Paul, as Paul was kind of announcing that he was going to conclude his book, uh, we saw why it was so important for us to understand why Paul's writing in the first place. I mean, he's writing because this is the, the gospel that he's giving to them, that this is the power to change their lives right here in the message that he's giving him. And this morning we take the next step in here. He's going to give us the, the, the plans he has for his ministry. So it's kind of his, his travel plans, and we'll see why it's important for us to understand that. And then along the way, as we do that, as we see his travel plans, we will discover how this tendency to be passive is overcome. So this morning we're in Romans 15, uh, verses 23 through 33. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1,125. And I do invite you to turn there if you haven't done so uh, and to have it open in front of you. So Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 33. Uh, the text is going to answer three questions related to Paul's plans here. So I'm repenting of my two-point sermons at least for one week and doing three points this morning. Um, no poem, sorry. Uh, so first question, what is Paul doing next? So this is a letter that was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to the church that was centered in Rome, the, the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul had never visited this church. He didn't plant this church. Uh, he had never visited it. He didn't have any kind of formal connection to it. At the very beginning of the letter, though, when he started writing in chapter 1, he said that he really wanted to go see these Christians. But, as we've just seen in the, the paragraph that we looked at last week, so uh, verses uh, 17 through 22, he's been really involved in the ministry that God has given him in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum, planting all these churches, preaching the gospel, and he just has not been able to get away to visit them. But, at long last, things are going to change. Uh, look at verses 23 and 24 with me. But now that there is no place for me to work in, the, in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. So at long last, it's finally time for Paul to visit the Christians in Rome. He's said throughout the book, or at the beginning and here again at the end, he really wants to go see them, but he's been prevented from doing so. And yet, even as he talks about how much he wants to go see these Christians, he can't name Rome as the ultimate destination. We expect in verse 23, he's saying, I, I've been longing to visit you for many years. Uh, finally, the opportunity is here. And we expect him in the next verse in 24 to say, and so I'm coming to Rome. But what he actually says in verse 24 is, and so I'm going to Spain, and I hope to see you on the way. So, 
I think this is a bit odd. Uh, one of Emily's sisters lives out in uh, Logan, Utah. She moved there several years ago. And, and we keep saying, we really want to go out to Utah. We, and Utah is a beautiful place. We want to go see Abby. We want to spend some time with her. We really, but it, it's just hard. When you have two kids, you have limited time and resources. And it's hard to make that trip all the way out west when the rest of the family is kind of here in the Midwest. So we keep talking about how we want to do it, but we haven't had a chance yet. So if we took Paul's tack here and, and took him as a kind of example of what we were supposed to do, we, we would say, okay, Abby, it's finally time for us to see you. We've been putting it off for a long time, but we've really wanted to, and finally we have a chance. So we are going to go to Seattle, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of stop off on the way and see you for a little bit in Logan. But we're, we're really about Seattle here. That's where we're going here. We'll try to see you on the way in Utah. It's a bit odd, right? I mean, Paul's talking about how much he really wants to see these people, and he's not going to say, I'm going to Rome. He's saying, I'm going to Spain. And to make it worse, Paul makes it clear that he expects this church in Rome to provide for his journey. Verse 24, he says, I want you to assist me on my journey there. So this is saying that he expects them to provide things like money, food, maybe even a traveling companion, maybe letters of introduction if they know some people in Spain. And he expects them to really contribute to his, his journey to Spain. So I'm going to Spain. I'll stop off and see you. And by the way, please help me get there. To us, this might seem a bit rude and presumptuous. But I think it's important, first of all, to see that, that Paul genuinely does want to see these Christians here. I mean, he expects this to be a visit that's not just a sort of one-hour layover on the way, but he expects to be refreshed by them, to have mutual encouragement. Uh, that's what he said at the very beginning in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He expects this to be a time where he can uh, minister to them, where they can minister to him. Here in 24, he expects to enjoy their company for a while. In verse 29, he expects this to be the, the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Again, in 32, he expects to be refreshed in their company. So he really does see this as an opportunity for, for mutual encouragement. I mean, here is a group of healthy Christians who understand the gospel, who are living well together, and he wants to go and to kind of preach the gospel among them to get more fruit there and to, to receive encouragement from them. So it's not that Paul is undermining uh, the Roman Christians or, or devaluing them. But the important part is the mission that God has given Paul. That's what has kept him from going to see Rome so far in all of his journeys. He's, he's busy preaching the gospel. He's busy planting churches. And so that's the most important thing. As much as Paul wants to go see these Roman Christians, the most important thing is that he is charged by God. His commission is to preach the gospel. And there are people in Spain who have not heard the gospel. Rome can't be his final destination because they've heard the gospel. There's this healthy church here that, that knows Jesus and is able to, to bring the message of Jesus to the surrounding area. So Paul can't have Rome as the final destination because there's already a church there and he knows that there are more people who have not heard the gospel that need to hear the gospel. Spain is this region on the far edge of the Roman Empire. And the Romans have had it for a couple hundred years now, but it really hasn't been settled as a province until maybe even Paul's lifetime. So this is the frontier of the Roman Empire, and there's no gospel witness here. And God has given Paul the task of preaching the gospel where it hasn't been heard. And so, of course, he's got to go to Spain. So as much as he wants to uh, encourage the Roman Christians and he wants them to encourage him, Spain's the ultimate goal because it's about God's mission. Now, it's important for us to see that this is not Paul alone. This is not a solo mission that he's going on. The language here in verse 24 makes it clear that the Roman church is to participate with him in this. 
because God's mission is what is primary, it's not just Paul, it's all the churches that are involved with this. So the church in Rome is strategically positioned in the center of the empire and further west than Paul is so that they can help him to proclaim the gospel where it hasn't been proclaimed. Spain needs to hear the gospel, and Rome, the church in Rome, can help Paul do that. So we get the, the travel plans uh, for Paul here, the, the next step for him. Our question is, what is Paul doing next? And the answer is clear. He's going to Spain, and he expects Rome to help him on his journey. Now, do you see how Paul makes the first step in removing being passive as a viable option? He's showing that the mission of God is the primary thing, right? He's saying that God's mission to bring healing to the world is the most important. It's the driving factor for him. So as as much as Paul personally wants to go and, and be refreshed and encouraged by these other Christians, the really foundational thing is that he proclaims the gospel, that he furthers the mission of God that God has given him. It's not about personal preferences. It's about the call of God. The problem with being passive is that it results from a faulty assumption. The choice to be passive is, is undergirded by the idea that, that life is really about me and, and my desires and my preferences. The choice to be passive is a choice that's made for my own desires, my own wishes. So being passive is the result of a life that's still lived for self. And that's simply not an option for Christians. For followers of Jesus, that whole order of life has been rearranged. It's not living for self anymore. It's, it's the mission of God being the primary thing. The, the most important thing in life for Christians is to worship God, to glorify him, to honor him, to obey him. So for the Christians, it's a total, totally reordered life. And it has to start with hearing the gospel. You can't just kind of put yourself forward and say, I, I'm, I'm not going to be changed by God first. I'm just going to do, do, do. Doing starts with being. So it starts with hearing the gospel, hearing that God in Christ has saved you, has moved you from death to life. He has freed you from slavery and made you his child. And it's hearing that, hearing what God has done, that then moves us to participate in the action. So the passive lifestyle is still rooted in this self-centered life, but the lifestyle that's pushing forward on God's mission is rooted in the change that God has brought in our hearts by the gospel. And that's really why Paul can talk about the church in Rome as a layover on his trip to Spain. Because he knows that the Roman church and he himself together have the same mission. They, their primary motivating factor is to glorify God by preaching the gospel where it hasn't been heard. Glorifying God by being on his mission. So when we hear what God is doing, it's the same thing. We can't be passive. We can't just say, oh, that's nice, and then move on living like we've always lived. When we hear that God is working, if the gospel has really taken root in our hearts, then, then we take up the two-year-old's question. We say, I want to help. What can I do? What's my part in this? It's not an option of being passive because God has worked in your heart and changed your affection so that self is not the driving force. It's now the mission of God that's the driving force. So that's the first thing we learn here, the first kind of step toward being not passive, and we learn it by seeing what Paul is doing and how the Roman church is involved in that. So what's Paul doing next? He's going to Spain through Rome. Second question, what is Paul doing right now? Look at verses 25 to 29 with me. 
Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So Paul's next plan, we just saw, was to go to Spain through Rome and for the Roman church to send him on his way there to preach the gospel. But first, he needs to finish the task that he's already started. Uh, we learn from elsewhere in the New Testament that Paul is collecting a financial contribution to bring to the church in Jerusalem, to bring to the Jewish Christians. And he sees this as a really, really important thing. This is worth risking his life over. He really thinks this is important. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 16 and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's giving even instructions for, for how to collect this contribution and, and encouraging the Corinthian church to really you know, dig in deep and, and provide for this financial gift. But why is that so important to Paul, that he's willing to put off his, his trip to Spain and Rome in order to do this? Well, first of all, it's, it's just an opportunity for churches to express their, their concern for other churches. These are poor Christians in Jerusalem. They are, they are suffering from hard financial times. So this is an opportunity for them to, to share, show their love for these other Christians. But even more significant than that, as important as that is, is Paul is really trying to um, bridge the gap between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's been a concern through the book of Romans. We've seen that, right? The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians need to come together as the one people of God under Jesus. But this was still a, a problem in the early church. That The early church was still wrestling with what it meant for a Jewish Messiah to be the king and Messiah for Gentiles. So did Gentiles have to become religiously and culturally Jewish in order to follow Jesus faithfully? Well, the church in Jerusalem, primarily being Jewish Christians, was pretty conservative on this issue. We can see that in the book of Acts. And Paul was seen as something of an innovator, even a dangerous innovator. He was kind of pushing the line on this, moving people away from the Jewish traditions and Jewish religious observances. So the Christians in Jerusalem uh, probably would have regarded Paul with a degree of suspicion. He would not have been welcomed with open arms necessarily, at least by the, the larger Christian community there. So Paul saw this contribution as an opportunity to bridge that gap. Here's a contribution specifically from the Gentile churches, from Achaia, from Macedonia. That means the Philippians, the Corinthians. So he collected all these money from the Gentile churches, and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem as something of a peace offering. He's saying, we really care about you. We're not trying to go off and do our own thing apart from the roots of our Jewish faith. We really care about the church. And he's seeing this as an opportunity to bring harmony. There was a Coca-Cola ad from a few years ago that was playing off the popularity of the rather unfortunate game Grand Theft Auto. Um, if you're familiar with the game, there's, there's lots of violence, and as the name indicates, it's about stealing cars and just general mayhem, a pretty dark game. Uh, but there, the Coke ad is using the same graphics, starting off in this, this dark, run-down city, and, and it starts off with this rather suspicious-looking character, and he goes up to a car, and he rips the door open, and he grabs the driver, and he pulls him out, and, and if you know anything about the game, you're expecting bad things to happen. He's going to beat the guy up, steal his car, whatever. 
But instead, he pulls out two bottles of Coke, and he hands one to the guy, and he takes one himself. He opens the caps, he clinks them, and they, they drink their Coke together. And it's, a, it's the, the start of this great movement in this city from a dark, run-down, dingy city to a beautiful place where people are living in harmony. It ends with this kind of procession down the street where everyone's happy and everything's great. Well, Paul hopes to see that in Jerusalem, maybe minus the parade and those kind of things. But, but he, he knows that he's going to be seen as that suspicious-looking character walking into a situation that's potentially volatile. And he doesn't want that to be the result of his ministry there. He wants the church to be united, Jews and Gentiles, together as one body of Christ, united following the Lordship of Jesus. And he thinks this peace offering that he's bringing, this financial contribution, is going to be the means by which the church is then united. So these are the, the, uh, the ministry plans that Paul has. He's going to go to Spain through Rome, but first he's got to bring this important contribution from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem. Now, partly Paul's just filling out his travel plans here. He's saying, you know, I'm going to come to you, but first I've got to do this. But I think he's also using this as an example of what it looks like for Christians to work together for the greater cause. I mean, he's already told the Roman Christians that he expects them to contribute to his journey, assist him on his missionary trip to Spain. So he's going to ask something of them, and he's showing them that the other churches are doing this too. There are already Christians who are contributing to this larger mission. The, the Gentile churches, the Bereans, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, they're all contributing to the larger church. They're contributing to Paul's ministry in Jerusalem. So again, we see that being passive towards God's mission is not an option. It's not an option for the Roman church. It's not an option for these other churches. As the one body of Christ, we are all pulling together for the mission that God has given us. So these other churches are already participating. They're a great example, and Paul expects Rome to follow suit. Okay, so there are first two questions. What's Paul doing next? Going to Spain through Rome. What's he doing first? He's taking this contribution to Jerusalem. Our last question, then, is, is what does Paul want this church to do? What does he want the Roman church to do? This is where Paul gets specific in his requests. Look at 30 to 33 with me. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul has already hinted at what he expects the Roman church to do. He's told them, I'm going to Spain and I expect you to be part of my mission to them, bringing the gospel to them. But like the Gentile churches that have contributed to this, this near-term mission of going to Jerusalem, Paul wants the Roman church to, to be part of that ministry too. And he specifically asks for prayer requests. He asks them to, to struggle hard with him. And I, I think it's easy for us to sometimes devalue prayer as, as a way of participating in ministry. Um, I don't know if you get missionary letters ever, but I have a number of friends who are missionaries, and, and they usually have a response card in there, and, and one of the boxes is, I will support you financially, and there's an opportunity to give a gift, and another box is, I will pray for you. And I always felt like what they really want is you to check the financial box and to make a, a financial commitment, and I always feel like if they get the card back and it's just the prayer box that's checked off, they're going to kind of put that aside, and okay, that's nice. 
And so what my thought is they're thinking, what you're communicating by checking off the I will pray for you box is that I got your letter, I'm not giving you money. That's my understanding of prayer, right? I mean, that's totally insufficient. That's wrong. Paul is saying here, prayer is a significant, substantial ministry that the Roman church can give him. I mean, do you see the language there? I am urging you by the Lord Jesus Christ, I am urging you by the love of the Holy Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying. So praying isn't a sort of, okay, well, they can't give money. Well, they'll just kind of check the box to say, I'm nice enough to, to send it back and to pray for you. Prayer is an actual part of the ministry, a, a vital part of the ministry. Prayer is so vital because it's recognizing that if the power doesn't come from God, then nothing significant is going to happen. If the power for Paul's ministry is only in himself, then the whole thing is a waste. It's going nowhere. So he's, this is a genuine call for prayer. Join me. Struggle with me. Pray with me. Join my ministry. Participate with me. And he gives specific requests here. Look at 31. Pray for, he's praying for two things. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and pray that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Now, there are real risks in this journey. The Jews in Jerusalem were not happy with this Christian movement. And Paul used to be part of this before he was converted, before he came to follow Jesus. Paul was part of this. He was trying to squash this whole Jesus movement, all these Christians. He was actually violently oppressing them. He was killing people to stop this movement. So he knew firsthand how strongly the Jews did not appreciate him and his ministry. He was taking his life in his hands by going to Jerusalem. It was a real risk. And even beyond that, it's quite possible that the church in Jerusalem won't receive this gift well. If they don't believe that, that Paul is really ministering well, that, that he re- is, if they think he's just kind of doing this thing by himself with the Gentile churches and turning away from the God of the Bible then they're not going to accept this contribution. It'd be like a bribe. They're not going to accept a bribe. So Paul really wants them to pray for his safety because it's a real danger to him, and he wants them to pray that, that this gift would, would accomplish its, its ministry and its purpose, that this would tie the churches together rather than just solidifying the divide. And we can actually you know, look at Acts 21 to 23 is, is the account of what happened when Paul actually went to Jerusalem and, and made this contribution and And as it happens, that trip was almost disastrous. The Jews tried very hard to kill him. Go back and read Acts 21 to the end of the the book, and it's a pretty interesting story. God answers Paul's prayer, but in a pretty unexpected way. The Roman guards actually had to arrest Paul and take him out uh, from the Jews so that the Jews wouldn't kill him. And even then, the Jews tried to lay a a plot for him to kill him the next day, and he had to be kind of taken away by night, taken away secretly to escape Jerusalem with his life. And he made it to Rome, but the way he made it to Rome was as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. So he made it to Rome. The the prayers were answered. He was saved from the unbelievers. It looks like the contribution was accepted by the Jerusalem churches, and Paul did find his way to Rome. But God has ways of working that are not necessarily what might have been in Paul's mind when he was asking for these prayers. But the point here is is that Paul is asking for the church in in Rome to do a specific contribution to his ministry. He wants the church to join him by struggling with him in prayer. Paul asks them to pray hard for him. So what we're seeing in this passage here, 23 through 33, what we're seeing is that that Paul is saying, "This this is what God's doing. 
This is the ministry that God has given me. This is what I'm planning to do, and this is your part in this. So, so he's trying to get them to see what God is doing and then to join in with that work. Now, the application for us is going to be a little different than the Roman church, right? This, the Roman church has specific instructions. Pray for my safety. Pray that the contribution would be well received, and then help me on my way to Spain. We can't do that, right? Paul's long dead and gone. It'd be kind of weird for us to be praying for his ministry now. But it's really the same motivation for us is, is driving our application of the text. It, it's seeing what God is doing and then joining in with that work. It's the same basic idea for us. See, we realize that this isn't really about Paul's mission. It's God's mission. That's why Jesus sent out his followers, go to the whole world and make more followers of me. Teach them what I've told you. Baptize them. Lead them to faith. That's the task that God has given the church. It's the same mission that Paul was on, the same mission that the Roman church was involved with, the Corinthian churches, the Philippian churches. All these churches are involved in the same mission. It's about proclaiming the gospel, bringing people to obey God. How does this happen? How does this move beyond this passivity to actually do it? I think it's what Paul is saying. It's, It's seeing what God's doing. It's when the gospel has, has changed our hearts away from that self-centered existence to want what God wants and to be part of his work, then, then it's just a matter of seeing what God's doing and finding our place in there. So what is God doing now? What is God doing that, that we can be involved with, that we can be part of? I mean, it's a, it's a huge answer to that. There's, there's a ton that can be said. Uh, uh, globally, God is doing incredible things all over the world. I mean, I just got a prayer letter from some, from some friends in India, and God's at work preparing them for ministry. And I have some friends in Kenya ministering there. We have uh, missionaries and friends in California and Alaska, all over the world. There's, there's a ton of things that could be said here about what God is doing right now in the world. But I want to focus specifically on what he's doing right here in our community, and even more specifically in our church. I mean, look, think back about the history of Trinity Evangelical Free Church. We, we've been a church for like some 130 years, right? And, and some of you have seen a lot of that history. And from the very, very beginning, 130 years ago, it was planted as a Swedish mission church. In other words, these were people who really believed the gospel. They wanted to be preaching the gospel to each other and to be growing, to be ministering to uh, Swedish immigrants. 90 years ago, they said, well, you know, we need to make a little change here. We need to switch our services from Swedish to English because, because we want to proclaim the gospel in a way that the people can understand. So originally it was Swedish because that's what the Swedish immigrants needed. And then it's moving to English because that's what people need. And through the years there have been so many changes through the church, but that's been the driving force, right? It's been about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about doing God's work, being on his mission, and that being the primary thing. And that's still the driver for us. It's us realizing that church isn't a place where we kind of come to feel good or to gather or, to, or whatever, whatever reasons you have for coming on a Sunday morning, even on daylight saving time. Church is about a, being a, a, a place where, where God's light shines out into the community. Church is, is the gathering of people who have heard the grace of God in Jesus Christ, heard that incredible message of God's grace poured out in Jesus to bring us from death to life. And because of that, that means that we are then missionaries to bring that message of grace out into our community. That's what the church has been from the very beginning. It's what we're still about. I mean, this, is, this is the journey we are on together. We look out into our community. We see brokenness and hurt and, and need for healing. And we, we know the gospel message, that the gospel is the real root, uh, the root solution to that, that, that this is God's healing brought through Jesus Christ to change the world. That's the message that we have. But we think, well, 
The task is so big. It, it's so much. It's, it's too much for us. Well, so where do we start? At every step of the way, we start where Paul told the Romans to start. We start with prayer. If we are going to be ministers of the gospel, if we're going to bring the healing and wholeness that Christ brings to our community, it has to start with prayer. It starts with God moving in our hearts, stirring in our hearts, giving us eyes and minds to understand what he is doing so that we can actually be part of it. So, you know, a year and a half ago, we started on this this new journey of of really seeking God's heart and God stirring us to really try to, to push forward on the mission God has given us, to not be passive, but to be actively involved in it. So we started with prayer. And I have to say, there have been so many blessings in the past year and a half. Big blessings, little blessings, medium blessings. It's been incredible to see what God has been doing. I think we had you know, people working downstairs to, to reconfigure the, the, the room for, for children and, and, and youth downstairs and, and uh, a financial gift that allowed us to, uh, to bring on Pastor Travis and then finding Pastor Travis. There are so many blessings along the way. It's incredible to see what God has already started to do. And, and even to me last Sunday, was, it was a great little picture of what, what God is doing and can be doing. I, I don't know if you know this, but there were over 30 kids downstairs last week in the, in the program, almost 40 kids even, downstairs hearing the gospel and having teachers who were showing them the love of God. I mean, a year and a half ago, that was maybe five or ten I, mean, I, want to, I want you to see that God is doing work here that it's not the result of what we are doing. This isn't me and Travis or, or me and Travis and the elders or, or anyone else. This is the work of God stirring our hearts and then, then giving us resources and bringing people to us so that we can, we can be effective in this, this mission of, of preaching the gospel. I mean, 40 kids still isn't a normal Sunday for us, that was, that was a, but it's a little blessing. It's, it's God showing us what's possible with his work, showing us what he can do. He's bringing people to us and sending us out into our community to make a difference. Now, this is where our tendency to be passive can be a very big roadblock. We can hear some encouraging news and think, that is great. I am so glad that we now have a pastor who's in charge of that ministry. And I wholeheartedly agree. But there is no way that one pastor or two pastors or a handful of people or a dozen people are able to bring the gospel to a whole community. There is no way that this ministry is going to succeed if we sit back and allow a few people to do all the work. We are called together by God to come together to be ministers of the gospel to the children of our community, to their parents, to the youth, to the students. This is our calling by God. We've seen little hints that God is doing great things. Those hints have to move us to action to see where we fit in that. Remember Ephesians 4, it's, it's Christians who are called to do the works of service. It's not people who are paid or missionaries or pastors or any kind of professional ministers. It's, it's all Christians who are called together to be ministers of the gospel, to do the works of service and ministry. That means that when we hear what God is doing, when you see the direction he's beginning to take us, being passive is not a viable option for Christians, for followers of Jesus. It's not, oh, okay, God's doing something, that's, that's great, hopefully he'll get someone else to do it. It's, it's saying, God is doing something and then asking that question, what can I do? I want to help. It's having the eagerness of a two-year-old in the face of the great, incredible work of God. We have such a tremendous opportunity here in our community to bring the gospel. So where do you fit in this? 
How has God gifted you? How, what are the passions that stir your heart? What is God doing in your heart? How has he wired you to be part of his kingdom work? It's not my job. It's not Pastor Travis's job. It's not the elder's job. It's all of us together being a community that's committed to bringing the gospel to Ludington. Perhaps your part is praying. That's a real significant part of this ministry. That's, that was the very beginning of it. It's been the power all throughout because it's, God power. it's, not, it's God's power. It's not our power. Perhaps your role is, is helping with nursery. Perhaps your role is helping with children's Sunday school. Perhaps your role is, is coming alongside a younger couple or some parents and trying to encourage them in their faith and, and to share what God has, has taught you over years of being his follower. Maybe it's getting to know those neighbors that you've always wanted to have over and, and finally kind of making some connections with them. I'm so grateful for so many of you pouring your lives into this. Really, it's been, it's been great. <laughs> I'm so grateful to God for you. So many of you have poured so much time and so much energy into this. But if, if that, uh, those of you who have been more passive in this process, who haven't really engaged, who have kind of sat back and, and said, well, there's other people doing that, that's great. I, I'm not trying to berate you, but I'm saying there's so much more for you. It's not that I want to like hit you with a stick and get you to move on. It's, it's I want to give you the carrot and say there's something more for you. There is something incredible about being part of a great work of God. And, and sitting back and being passive is, is just a distraction. It's taking you away from, from being the blessing of, of being part of God's great work. There is so much more for you. And to, to see what God's doing and to sit back and say, okay, well, someone else is doing it, that's great. That is just not the way to live. As a Christian, you are called to be part of God's great work. That's what you were designed to do. And when you do that, that's when you experience life to the full, abundant life. That's what, that's what you were called to do. That's what stirs your heart, gives meaning to your life. So that's the underlying message here. It's see what God is doing. And then join in. Play your part. Don't settle for anything less than that. Being passive is just is not an option for followers of Jesus. We are called on the mission God has given us. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a vocational minister unless God calls you to those things. But God has called you where you are right now to be a minister of his grace. He has given you gifts and talents. He has stirred your heart. He has changed you by the gospel. And now you are called to participate with him, to be part of his ministry. See what God's doing and join in. It's the greatest blessing in this life. Please pray with me. Father, inertia is so difficult to overcome. We get stuck in patterns of life, whether they're really, really busy patterns. It doesn't necessarily mean we're lazy people, but there are just so many things on our plate and so many other things that we're doing. And Sometimes we think, well, when do I even have time to be part of God's work? And that's the gut check to say, if there's no time for God's work, then I need to cut things out of my life. I need to reorder my life. Father, I pray that you would start in our hearts at the very beginning, that you would speak the gospel of Jesus Christ deep into our hearts, that you would start by changing our affections so that it's not just trying to have this self-centered life and living for our own desires, but that at the very core of who we are is wanting to please you and glorify you and honor you and worship you with our whole lives. 
And then, Father, give us the courage to follow hard after you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.